This is the current federal tax developments for the week of September the 25th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we have a few developments this week to talk about. Uh, first, going to look at the fact that the FinCEN, remember those people? Well, we're not talking about foreign bank account reporting today, but rather we're talking about their provision of a guide to small businesses for beneficial ownership reporting under the Corporate Transparency Act. Talk about the CTA, how that works, you know, and essentially what's in that guide. There's a lot of useful stuff in a 56-page guide that I do strongly suggest you download from FinCEN's site and probably go back and check every so often to make sure they've not updated it. Because as we'll discover, they call this version 1.0. So presumably there could be a version 1.1 or a 2.0. So we may want to keep an eye on this every so often. We also have a case where a taxpayer found that it doesn't really matter what type of proof you might be able to offer. It makes it appear clear the IRS received your tax return early enough so you can still claim your refund. If you don't follow the rules under 7502, you're just out of luck. And I think that's important to understand the way the courts now view the strict requirements to meet 7502 rules in most cases. And we'll talk a bit about that, what happened to this taxpayer, what 7502 and the regulations under 7502 require, and take a look at maybe what you should consider doing. Third, we're going to look at the impact of the receipt of a CP2100 slash 2100A notice by a payor related to payments to a contractor uh, and backup withholding. We'll talk about under two scenarios. Scenario one, where the contractor uh, had never provided, had never been asked for, or never provided an employer identification number or social security number to the taxpayer or to, to the payee. To say the payee didn't provide, the payor it didn't get one. Or cases where the payor received an ID number from the payee, but then it turns out that number was wrong. And we'll talk about, you know, is there liability for payments made uh, prior to the time you had the real number? Uh, regardless of whether you had never asked for a number or you were given the wrong one. So we'll talk about that under an IRS uh, program manager technical advice. Let's start with the FinCEN item. This is a guide entitled the Small Entity Compliance Guide, published by the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, uh, version 1.0, dated September of 2023. This came out on the 18th of September. And What's happening now is that FinCEN, as we're getting closer to the end of the year and the theoretical beginning of the filing program on January 1st, we'll see if they meet that date, but they are beginning to add more resources and they now have a specific small business page to assist small businesses who remember under these rules will be the primary people filing these reports. Because as you should be aware, uh, you know we're not worried about the Walmarts of the world, you know the Apples, uh, those sorts of issues. We're worried primarily about small non-operating companies, especially, or at companies that have few or no employees, uh, companies that have very little revenue, or, you know, essentially, those are the ones that are going to need to file this thing. And that's going to be a lot of our clients and not the ones that have staff to be able to actually handle filing these things will be where our problems come. And FinCEN's recognizing that we have a requirement here that's going to require a lot of small businesses uh, to have to step up and do this information. It is a 56-page PDF. It has information on key reporting details necessary. 
And that will include entities that have to file this report, entities that are exempt from filing. Remember, there are 23, 23 categories where even though you would otherwise be required to file, uh, you are exempt. And we'll talk a little bit about those and what they are. We'll also talk about the beneficial ownership rules, right? Who's a beneficial owner uh, and what exactly that means. And that's brought up in the 56 pages. Now, the chapters in this manual, uh, and it goes on, as I said, for 56 pages. Uh, the first chapter is entitled, Does My Company Have to Report Its Beneficial Owners? So that's a discussion to figure out if there is going to be a reporting requirement for your company. Uh, chapter two, then, is to determine who is a beneficial owner of your company. You have to identify those people so we can report their data. Chapter three is, does the company have to report company applicants? Now, as you may remember when we discussed this earlier, a company applicant is only required to be reported for entities that are formed on or after January 1st of 24. So existing companies will not report company applicants, but beginning with things that are formed in 24, uh, we're going to have to start reporting the company applicants when we form these new LLCs or corporations. Chapter four is what specific information does my company need to report? Chapter five is when and how should my company file its initial BOA report, again, timing and stuff. And chapter six deals with what if there are changes to the information or what if there are inaccuracies in the information. Now, some interesting things in here. There are a number of checklists, which is helpful. And basically we have checklists in here for each of the 23 exemption categories. And while obviously you don't just go with the checklist by itself, because you can't explain all of these in just two or three sentences, they'll give you a pretty good clue by going through the checklist of who's there. I've heard a lot of people requested when I've ever talked about this, talking about the rules for not-for-profits or and entities that support non-for-profits. And there are really some helpful checklists there that tell you, uh, based heavily upon the IRC code provision that you're exempt under, whether or not you have a filing requirement. So you want to take a careful look at those checklist if you think your company may be exempt. Uh, also talks about the large company, the uh, basically the kind of you know dormant company issues, uh, those sorts of items. And as I said, a useful checkbox there, checklist. So make sure you look at that. We also have checklists that let you determine if somebody has substantial control or if somebody has an ownership interest in an entity. Remember, if you have substantial control or a greater than 25% ownership interest in the entity, then you have to report the, that person's information as part of the report. So determining who's who, there's some useful uh, kind of information and checklist items to go through there, work up on that. And third, there's a set of checklists because even if somebody qualifies as a beneficial owner, there are five categories that are, even though they'd be a beneficial owner, are exempt. And so it has checklists to say, okay, is this guy, person, even though they meet the requirement of substantial control or they have some ownership interests, and normally for this exempt category, it's going to be people that have the ownership interests, although substantial control may impact in the employee exception. So, you know, you have to take a look at both. Uh, but in any event, it will lie determine if somebody meets one of those five exemption categories so that even though they would otherwise seem to be required as somebody with substantial control or beneficial ownership, that you could leave them off the report. Or quite often what we end up doing is have to substitute somebody else in there, you know, such as the parent of a minor child.
is substituted for the minor child, even though the minor child may technically have a beneficial ownership interest that's more than 25% in the entity. Now, it also has some general guidance uh, involved areas like, you know, reporting of company applicants, those situations when you do that. Uh, the detailed information be provided for both the company and for the beneficial owners, so it can walk you through that kind of stuff. Uh, it talks about dealing with changes information and later reporting. So that's very useful when the reports must be filed and how such reports must be filed. Those are all issues covered by this. So as I said, this is a very useful PDF. You probably do want to go make sure it doesn't change. Uh, it's actually available in a couple of languages too. So apparently we have other issues. So depending upon if you have some clients, you know, whose English is not their first language, uh, you'll find that there are some published, it appears look like, I remember glancing at it quickly. It appears there's a Chinese version, Spanish, French, as I recall. Uh, so, you know, if you have those issues, you, you can help take care of that. Or you have international, you know, clients who are based internationally. So, as I said, their first language, not English. Uh, you, you could make use of that to maybe make it easier for them to understand uh, what exactly they're supposed to report to the U.S. government to make these things work. So, in any event, as I said, it is a useful device, a useful item. So, make sure you take a look at that. Next up, we're going to talk about uh, where, well, man, this guy's got too many consonants at the beginning of his name. Uh, I would just say world, well, versus United States, whatever. Uh, case number 3-21-CV-00424. This is from the United States District Court for the Western District of Wisconsin. And the opinion came down on September 18th. Now, this is issues looks at the rules under Section 7502, known as a timely filing is, or timely mailing is timely filing rules of 7502. And more specifically, the importance of following those rules. And we're going to talk about why, even though it may seem, and I see a lot of, a lot of tax uh, advisors who will sit there and argue with me constantly about, you know, how, well, this is just as good as getting certified mail. And usually what they're describing to me is something that obviously will fail under the rules we'll talk about today. So, or, you know, it has some big holes in it. And so we want to talk about this. And secondly, my case is anyway, even if you have found some magic incantation that, you know, you might find a court would accept, why are we taking the chance? Because we've seen some, you know, professionals actually get called out by the court. Uh, when there's been late filings, you know, basically you can't prove the timely filing of uh, tax court petitions. I remember an attorney getting called out for that. And I mean, the opinion flat out said, well, you know, you're, you're an attorney. You should have known that you, if you use certified mail, we wouldn't be here today. So I'm not feeling bad for you is kind of the way it came across. So that could be bad. So in essence, generally we'll talk about the 7502 rules, what they are and how to work with them. Now, generally, under 7502A1 proof of filing, that's the general rule. And the general rule is one that people, unfortunately, again, haven't read and don't really understand the limitations of it. What it says is, you know, general rule would be if the due date for getting something to a government agency is fill in the blank, you know, let's say December 15th. 
If that's your due date for getting something to the entity or to the agency, then literally that's the day it should be in their office. That is the day it should be delivered. Now, in many cases, we provide that so long as the document is mailed, put in the U.S. Postal Service mails by that date, and you know it will be deemed to be timely filed. Okay. Now, here's what 7501, 7502, I should say, A1 actually puts in as requirements. Okay, let's assume you are not going to walk your tax return into wherever you're filing with, right? We're not going to walk it into, you know, the Ogden office or whichever office you're filing it. So we don't walk the returns in there. Rather, we're going to go ahead and we are having to send in paper. Let, let's say it is a return that can't be electronically filed or it is a return that, you know, they don't want to electronically file and you've agreed to go ahead and prepare it after they sign the waivers. Um, you know, OK, fine. Uh, you know, you're not going to walk it in. Because walking it in would work. Uh, it's just a long walk to get to the right place. So you, your client's probably not going to want to book a plane trip to go you know, see their IRS service center on the filing date. So most likely you'll mail it in. And the law says, well, so long as, and these are the two conditions, so long as the envelope or container that has the return or document that we're trying to get a date on is postmark there is a postmark applied to it that is dated right on or before the last date for filing so there's rule one i need to know what's on the postmark on the envelope and then rule two and that document is actually delivered to the taxing agency even if that delivery date is after the stated due date then the return will be deemed or document will be deemed to have been actually delivered to the IRS on the date it was postmarked. Now, there's obviously two huge flaws in that option. Flaw number one is proving the postmark on the envelope. Remember, it's got to be on the envelope, right? So that, that means things like proof of mailing don't work because that doesn't prove the date on the envelope. So there's problem one, right? And in most cases, they're not getting proof of mailing either. The people that think it's too much trouble to go get mail certified mail, you know, are not going to want to go in the post office for anything. So that's who are the people that want to use, or even better, the ones that want to use their postage meter, which actually has a whole special set of rules. But there it is required that it make it to the IRS by the date we would expect it to get there under normal Postal Service operations, which is called living really dangerously. And then as I, so since we have to prove both the postmark and we have to prove it actually made it to the IRS, we have a problem if the IRS says we never got it. Now, it is very possible the IRS might lose it. That They've been known to do that. They'll even admit that can happen, but it doesn't matter. You know, the problem is you're the party asserting the return was filed on time. So the burden of proof, like it or not, is on you. Because the other side of it is, it'd be very easy for people that didn't file timely to just swear that, oh, oh, I sent that in on time. You didn't get it? Wow. Sorry about that. I'll, I'll get a copy out to you. So yeah, it's a problem. 
So the catch is, even though we have that general rule, and even though if you drop it in the post, if you drop it in a mailbox, which given mailbox thieves, I wouldn't suggest is a good idea to do, but if you did, um, as long as it gets postmarked by that date, and as long as it gets to the IRS, who will keep a copy of the envelope, right? They have a copy of the envelope there. So they'll have a copy of that date and, you know, and they don't lose it, then you're fine. It was timely filed. And obviously 99% of the time that works just fine. But the problem comes in the 1% of the time where the IRS either claims they didn't get it, they claim the postmark was illegible and it arrived after the time it should have taken. There are various situations where we're in trouble, even though the taxpayer may clearly have gone to the post office, right, and mailed the document in a timely manner. So the catch is, well, let's assume that happens. What exactly can we do? Well, there are some ways. The code actually 7502 uh, C has provisions that actually provide for a, getting proof of the postmark date and getting presumptive proof, a presumption, prima facie evidence of delivery of the document to the IRS. And it's deemed to happen on the day you mailed it. And how you do that is you get either registered or certified mail. Those are your two options. Now, the other two that are protected ways of filing are using a specified private delivery service. Now, be careful there. We're talking literally about the service, not the company. What I mean by that is you need to go down and see exactly which services the IRS currently designates. And where that became a problem a couple of years ago, and there was literally a case on this, after the IRS had published their initial list, the you know, FedEx added a service called First Overnight. Now, First Overnight got it there very, very, very early in the morning. But the problem was that service was not on the list. Now, things like FedEx Today were on the list. So... You know, if you just went and you got the cheap version, right, FedEx two day, then yeah, if it worked under the specified private delivery service rules. Uh, but if you just said, oh, well, you know, obviously the best thing to get is the one that gets it there earliest, the you know, as early as possible. No, it actually didn't, and there were it was at least one case I remember that was lost because they used first overnight, which meant all they did was prove delivery to the IRS late, a day late, and you know. And they didn't get a didn't get to go back to the date it was actually postmarked by FedEx because this service wasn't covered by the rules. Now, since then, uh, first overnight has been added, but you always always have to check the list of services and make sure that the specific service you're getting from FedEx or UPS is a service the IRS has endorsed. So that's that's something to just keep in mind. That that's an easy one to foul up. The first overnight bit was an obvious. Simple fallow. You know, people would assume that that has to work, and no, it didn't because it wasn't on the list. But we're going to concentrate today on the certified and registered, or I should say the other way to get it, electronic filing, which again, we're not going to talk about today because we're talking about a taxpayer in this case who mailed a return. So we're going to talk about a mailing situation here. Now, initially, this taxpayer's got a bit of a problem. They didn't timely file their 2016 returns. Now, as you are aware, your 2016 return 
uh, the date presumed paid for the money, and so the date we're going to start counting uh, will be April 15th of 2016 or 2017. And generally, to be able to claim a refund, and the taxpayer was due a refund on this return, the taxpayer should have filed their return uh, prior to, you know, April, I should say, should have filed the return. They would have to file the return prior to three years after that date or in April of 2020. So that would be the deadline. So simple rule is if the return is filed before April 15th of 2020, and actually remember that was a weird year anyway, you might remember that year, uh, COVID, etc. So realistically, we would have gotten until July that year to file it, you know, but if, if we had filed it, you know, by July, because then it would have been treated as if it was filed in April under the special COVID relief, you know, but if it had been filed there, we'd been fine. However, you know, you know, if it's filed after that date, though, then it doesn't matter. You can't get the refund and you can't apply the refund to the next year. I've seen that asked regularly over the past few years. It seems to get asked you know, in discussion groups at least once or twice every year. And the answer is always, no, you can't do that because it would render the statute of limitations uh, rather, you know, moot issue if I could just apply it to the next return. Because all the statute says is I can't claim a refund. Well, if I could direct the application of the next year, then I just file amended returns that do nothing, don't ask for the refund, but just keep pushing it on to later returns until such time as I get to a year where the statute's still open and then I'll ask for the refund on that year. So as I said, it, it would make the whole statute irrelevant. So no, you can't do that. So that's our question. Did this person file their 2016 return with the IRS prior to uh, April of 2020? Okay. Now, he hadn't filed a number of returns, but he claimed he filed in, as a group three returns at the same time, which generally isn't a smart idea either in one envelope, but okay, because things like this happen when you do that. But but we'll go ahead and go, go this route. So here's what happens is he files all three returns, apparently in one envelope with the IRS and with the state of Wisconsin. And frankly, I think the court and everybody believes he did it. We'll talk about why. There, there is some reason to believe that it really happened. But in any event, right, he ends up doing that. So we end up with all of these returns filed right? In those days. Now, he ends up getting only the 2017 refund from the IRS based on this filing in October of 2019. He gets nothing for 16 and nothing for 18. However, from the state of Wisconsin, he does get all three years. Okay. So, you know, he's a little concerned at this point. So in December of 2020, he filed another claim because he hadn't heard anything about 16 and 18, so he's following up. And so he files another. Uh, it doesn't really, the court doesn't really say why he did that instead of just asking about it. But I have a feeling he probably asked about it. And they said, we don't have a record of it. Why don't you file a new one? And so, you know, he, he filed the documents in. He sent the documents in. And the December, and the 2020 ones in December of 20, those they, they did find and they actually processed the 16 and the 18 return. However, they said, nice getting the return from you. Good news, you don't owe money on 16, because if you did, you would have owed it with interest and penalty. But bad news, you were overpaid, and that refund you gave up because you didn't file a return within three years. 
Okay, taxpayer now objects and say, wait, 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 wait. I filed those returns in October of 2019. And so I did file before the three-year date was up. I should be able to get my refund. Now, the IRS first said, well, you know, when this guy first went to court and put in his, you know, and filed suit, uh, you know, they're saying, well, he never really said he filed timely, right, in the initial pleadings he had. So they're going to argue that, that, in fact, he has no right to even bring up the question of whether they were filed timely because he gave up that right. The court wasn't so thrilled with that. First thing they said, look, th th this is a pro se litigant, so we'd be a little more lenient with him anyway, not understanding all the details. But they said, second, nothing he's saying now is inconsistent with his claim that he did make. He's, he's not like, you know, d disavowing something that was said in the original complaint. They said, so no, IRS, you're wrong. He has a right to raise the issue of was a return timely filed. So that issue could be raised. So sounds good to get started with, right? Could be raised. And they also agreed that the taxpayer had produced evidence the 2016 return was timely filed. And it was based on the fact that all the Wisconsin processed three returns and the IRS processed 2017. The court said it, it's unlikely that he had sent three returns to Wisconsin, but only sent the 17 return to the IRS. The far more likely explanation, the court really didn't say this, but the court had probably assumed, the far more likely explanation was the IRS didn't notice there were three returns in there, and they only processed the one. So the other two returns weren't processed because they just dealt with one return. And because of that, who knows, the person saw the other stuff in there, was assigned to input 17, may have just said, I don't, you know, I don't know what this is. So trashed it, whatever, shred it. In any event, it's gone. And normally, if we're talking about something other than a tax issue, right, we were talking about some other area or general rule, like let's say, you know, we're talking about, for instance, a similar rule applies if somebody gives their notice they're going to claim COBRA as long as they mail it to the, to the company, you know, by the 60th day, then they are deemed to have made the election. And in that case, if there was a dispute, then, then the person did it could use the mailbox rule and what's called the common law mailbox rule. In essence, you're, you're allowed to present evidence of mailing. And if you can present evidence that the document was mailed and the document, you know, mailed and properly addressed, then, you know, there is a presumption that it was delivered. So that's called the common law mailbox rule. But there's a problem here under the tax law. The issue had been, they note there's a problem. They said, okay, 7502 is there. We know under 7502, had he gotten, sent his return registered or certified and kept the receipt, right, that shows the date it was sent, the white receipt. Please remember it's a white receipt, not the green card. I don't care about it. the green card is not ever mentioned in the regs. They never say you have to get the green card. That's another myth that people have. You can get the green card if you want. Maybe it makes you feel better. Uh, but it can make you feel worse if it doesn't come back. And by the way, it might not come back because it gets lost in the mail coming back to you. Um, yeah, you know, if, if you had to wait for the green card, the whole thing would be worthless because, again, if, if it gets lost or if they, you know, if it gets lost, if it gets lost in the mail, or if the card coming back to you gets lost in the mail, you don't have any proof whatsoever. So, again, 
not that's not the key. The key is the white thing that they give you, the little white receipt stamp by a U.S. Postal Service employee. By the way, don't foul that one up either. There was one case a number of years ago where they got lazy and took it to a mailboxes, etc. Uh, now UPS stores, what I think they call those. Uh, but anyway, you know they, they'll go ahead and handle certified mail for you. But unfortunately, what they do is they, they just accumulate them, and then somebody takes them to the post office. Well, the fact you had a receipt from mailboxes, etc. That, that said you gave them the letter on the last date doesn't help you unless they got it down there. And it turns out, you know, the teenager working at that place, oh, they got busy. He didn't have time. So he just took the certified mail down the next day. So the receipt they did have was one day late, which that's also a problem. So yes, you got to go to the post office. And yes, you got to get it stamped, right? That'd be the key. But, but we know that if you got it, it'd be work. But in this case, he didn't get it. Now, prior to a regulation change in 2011, the courts had split on, well, you know, if you don't get it, can you still use the common law mailbox rule, right? Can we still say, if we could prove mailing, and I you know the court here is kind of saying that given the evidence they've got, the court is finding that there appears to be reasonable evidence that the document was mailed. There is other corroborating evidence like the processing by Wisconsin, the fact that the IRS did without question get the 17 return, and it just seems absurd that they would have somehow gotten 17 but not, you know, he wouldn't have sent 16 and 18 to the IRS, even though he had it done for Wisconsin, who needed the IRS numbers. Like, why would you do that? So, you know, basically, they probably would have won on a, on a common law mailbox rule. But the problem is that in 2011, of course, and as the court said, it would have, and it would have been interesting because the Seventh Circuit, where this case would have gone on appeal, had never really ruled on whether the common law mailbox rule worked you know, versus standard 7502. If 7502 eliminated the rule or not. Now, in the Ninth Circuit, where I'm at, the Ninth Circuit had said that there were ways to invoke the common law mailbox rule. It might be difficult, but there, there were kind of other ways to invoke, right? But in 2011, the IRS revised 7502 regulations, and they said, look, the proper use per the regulation of certified registered mail or the equivalent services and then following their rules, is the only way, exclusive way to get a presumption that the return was delivered, or the document was delivered to the IRS, and that the document was mailed by the due date. That little white receipt is it. Don't have that or the equivalent from FedEx, which is after they process it through the system, you have to go into their system and download. And the IRS does warn you that they don't keep those around very long. So don't wait until the service says two years later you didn't file or you won't have any evidence. So you got to go get it if you use FedEx. So remember that if you're using FedEx or UPS, you got to go get that information fairly quickly after it's sent uh, to be able to show and make your proof or use electronic filing. And we all know about the proofs there for the e-postmark dates, et cetera, that are normally our tax software vendors are providing through to us. So those will serve as proof, uh, but you know you got to have that proof to do it. But if you don't have those, then the only way you can prove it for the IRS is to actually show physical delivery prior to the due date to the IRS, which is going to be virtually impossible for a taxpayer to do. And obviously that's not going to happen if the taxpayer put it in the mailbox on the due date as many taxpayers do. So that's another problem that we've got. Now, 
courts have ruled that since 7502 has now, you know, basically have ruled since the regs come out that 7502 now eliminates the mailbox rule. That has been the unanimous decision of every court that, you know, the issue has been resolved. If you're a member from the Supreme Court's decision uh, back, you know, years ago uh, involving the, um, oh gosh, now, now it gets me. Yes, our, our, our big medical group from Rochester and in Scottsdale, right? Those guys, the Mayo Clinic. Okay, that's right. The Mayo Clinic case or Mayo Foundation, I think was the name of the case. Uh, the, from that case, you know, that regulations are all, you know, in essence, if there's ambiguity in the law and everybody agreed that 7502 is ambiguous uh, and the IRS makes a reasonable choice in the regulations, that therefore that choice shall be deemed, you know, to be the proper and only choice. Now, again, there is talk of the Supreme Court going back and revisiting the concept there because that case does depend on what's called Chevron deference. But until such time as they do, the courts up to the Supreme Court are definitely going to follow, you know, need, need to follow the Supreme Court's ruling and give Chevron deference and also therefore recognize uh, the, you know, the, the rule of the Mayo Clinic case. So basically, yeah, we, we have a problem there. So it basically, you have to follow the rules, right? And they said, since the taxpayer could not produce the proof required in 7502, they found the taxpayer had not proven that they had timely filed a note, basically a return with the IRS asking for a refund. And therefore, the only one they, the only one the IRS acknowledged, which was the one filed in 2020, was clearly filed after the date. And therefore, since the taxpayer could not prove timely filing of a claim, um, tough luck. Uh, the refund has been forfeited. So sad, but true. Now, as I say, this is an illustration of why it is really important, especially on procedural issues like this, to understand the law and regulations. Where every tax pro who's argued with me has gotten it wrong is they believe that all they have to show is that it got mailed by that date, which, no, read the law, read the regs, that's not what they say. Now, if you do that and everything works right, then you're great. But the problem is, you haven't read that, so now you're reasoning, and so you're deciding things like, you know, uh, basically proof of mailing receipts are fine. They're not. You're, you're deciding that, you know, being able to get, you know, the tracing online is fine. That's been a little more interesting. The court's been a little inconsistent about using that in some cases, but again, don't bet on it, because remember, you got to prove a proper postmark and delivery. Those, you know, that, that getting online and finding the date it was shown delivered may help you if that date is before the due date, because at least a number of courts have said, well, if you can prove they actually got it before the due date, then it doesn't matter. You know, you don't need to say 502 because they'll argue is 7502 only applies to items received by the IRS after the date they were due to make them timely. So, you know, that, that may be possible. But again, the question becomes quickly, why in the world are we taking any chances? You know, if the client is too lazy and won't go do it, that's fine. But if you never told them about the ability to do that, and suddenly they're, they're faced with a return that the IRS claims was never timely filed, and, you know, they, they owed a six-figure amount, well, you know, the late filing and then late payment penalty and interest on that is going to be substantial. 
uh, you know, by the time we finally get around to figuring out that the IRS says they never got the item in question. So, yeah, it's really important to prepare and tell people if they're going to be filing paper documents, make sure that, that you actually claim, you know, you actually get the certified mail or registered mail receipt in place. If you're going to use the uh, private delivery services, make sure somebody goes and gets the information right shortly, you know, and by the time you know, verifies actually got to the IRS and picks up that information once it does to get the whole proof from FedEx or UPS's system. And at least if it doesn't show up as getting there right away, at least grab the information shows it got into their system and was registered. That's also crucial. Normally, they always come by with their scanner that will register it in the system as soon as the driver picks it up or as soon as you hand it across the counter to the person at the FedEx or UPS office. So, you know, normally you, you can prove when it went in and prove it gets in the system. So there are ways to track it. But yeah, that is a problem. These 7502 cases are all sad because way too often, you know, it's fairly clear that the person almost certainly sent it out prior to the date in question. But the problem is they can't prove it. And what they thought was adequate proof, what they thought should work because they reasoned it out, turns out to be inadequate. So make sure you understand that in the rules, right? Now let's talk about the receipt of a CP2100 or 2100A notice and its impact on a payer's liability for backup withholdings in two situations. Now this is a basically program manager's technical advice, it should be PMTA, right? A program manager's technical advice on backup withholding. This is 2023-003, issued on September 22nd. Now the backup withholding rules of 3506A, and we're only talking about two, there actually are four ways that can be triggered, but this one only deals with two ways. And they're, they're the main two ways you'd be triggered on backup withholding. If you're paying somebody, let's say, you know, who's being paid as an independent contractor. Um, the first rule says under 3406A1A that you must withhold on any person you're paying if the payee fails to furnish the TIN to the payor in the manner required, which generally they must have it before the first payment because every payment is that, is required, you know, it's potentially subject to the backup withholding rules. Now, as we all know, if no 1099 is required, then the backup withholding wasn't required. But the problem is you don't know if a 1099 is going to be required until we see if we pay more than 600 during the year. So generally, you know, that, that's the first problem. So if you don't get it, backup withholding is required. But secondly, even if you get it, if the IRS notifies the payor that the TIN they got, the taxpayer DNI where they got from the payee is incorrect. Right, that's a second time where you may be required to start backup withholding. Okay, now they propose two scenarios in this case, right? You get the CP 2100-2100A notice. That's the notice you get for the, you know, bad ID number, missing ID number issue, right? But they get that notice after they failed to withhold, if they, if they weren't withholding for this person, and they failed to get an ID number from the payee. Now, when they got the notice, they followed the instructions, which will tell you to send a you know, W-9 to this person, request the, request the information, and do backup withholding, you know, essentially if you don't get it or until you get it, backup withhold on them, All right? So they got that, they followed the instructions, did exactly what the instructions said, okay? That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is you get the notice after you haven't been withholding on paying to this contractor, 
But now the IRS sends you the notice that the TIN or Social Security number does not agree with the, you know, with that, you know, with the name on the, on, on the, you know, on the 1099. And so you're supposed to get that corrected and they'll tell you to send a W-9, ask them to verify their name and the TIN, you know, and all that stuff. And there is a certain period of time that you're allowed to, you know, in essence, if you don't get the ID number within that period of time, then you have to start backup withholding, right? So th th those are your rules in question. The question coming up is now in either of these cases where in fact, let's say, you know, we get this, is the payor liable for backup withholdings on payments made before they receive the notice? Okay. Now that that's our question. Are they liable? So under the first scenario, you probably won't be surprised that it points out the law says if the payer does not get an ID number from the payee, then withholding is required immediately. So the issue is you didn't get the number from the payee, right? Because you didn't get it, the backup withholding rules kick in. They are supposed to give you that number. If you don't have it, then to protect the interest of the government, you're supposed to withhold on those amounts. So they say in that case, even if the payor followed the instructions perfectly once they got the notice, they're on the hook for backup withholding for prior payments because they, you know, they, they, they failed to withhold earlier. Um, and that makes some sense because otherwise people would just not ask for the stuff, right? And wait till the IRS somehow discovered, oh, that this contractor should have been reported and then turn around and say, oh, you must do backup withholding, right? Yeah, that, 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 that could be a problem. So that's, that's the first scenario. In scenario two, if the payee gives an improper ID number, you know, then because you had an ID number, you're not required to verify it. Um, the requirement to withhold would not kick in until the IRS actually notifies you there's a problem with that ID number. And then you would be put on the issue of, and normally this is delayed or even eliminated if a W-9 is issued, and the payee responds promptly enough to give you the proper ID number, then, you know, basically you don't have a problem and you don't owe anything for the periods before where it was reported under the wrong ID number. That, that's not really an issue for you, so that's fine. No backup withholding owed for any payments made before the notice was issued, right? Now, what this illustrates is the need to obtain ID numbers from non-corporate payees, that should be payees on the slide, not payors, before the first payment is made, right? Issue W-9s and don't, and tell your clients, don't issue a check until you get the W-9s back. Now I know, cause I deal with different, number of different payors, I think some of you do too. And I deal with some larger companies. And in those cases, you know, they almost without exception will not give me a check, right? They will not give even the corporation, you know, cause I, we buy it through the accounting firm. They, they will not give the accounting firm a check or at least a check without backup withholding unless we have given them a W-9 and indicated that we're exempt or provided our ID number. So that's, that, that, that's one of the key issues there, right? That means don't wait until the payments hit $600 because then you're going to be on the hook for the backup withholding on 600 bucks if they don't give you the information. And since they'll probably drag it out a while anyway, uh, if they're going to not give it to you, you'll probably find your clients well over 600 
uh, by the time they finally figure out they're never getting that number from the guy. Uh, don't also wait, which I've seen lots of people do, and oh, at the end of the year, they finally figure out who they're issuing 1099s to, and then they try to get the ID numbers. Again, if that goes wrong, uh, you're just stuck writing back and withholdings. And it may go wrong just because you fired the, you know, you fired the contractor, you terminated contractor services uh, within the year. So you got rid of the contractor. Now you're going to go use somebody else instead of using this, you know, whatever, you know, this janitorial firm, you're going to go use a different one. Uh, and now they're just mad at you. So they won't give it to you. And suddenly you're on the hook for paying the back of withholding. Which, you know, and they're, they're not at all sad about that. So, as I say, watch out for that in that case. Because the risk here is you might need to make the payments because you can't get the money from the vendor for the backup withholding. It's going to be very rare that they're going to ever give you the backup withholding. Right? They're just going to say, tough luck if that should, you know, you, you, you should have asked me for ID number earlier, uh, you know, especially in the case where you just didn't ask for it. And it might have slipped your mind. You may never have noticed. You may not have issued 1099. And so they're not about to give you the, the issue. And then you got to hope they'll cooperate with you enough to at least help you maybe wriggle out of it. You can show they paid their tax. But again, probably a lot easier to get that data from somebody you're still doing work with than it is from somebody whose services you terminated because you went with somebody cheaper. Yeah, that, that could be a problem. So this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of September 25th. Hey, one week now until your fiduciary returns are done. So all those trusts and, you know, calendar your estates. Yeah, that's coming up. And then we get uh, basically two weeks from the date that we end up having to do the what 1041s. We end up with the 1040s because that'll be October 16th. So, oh, happy day. Wonderful. All this great stuff. So in any event, you know, take care. Have a good wild end of tax season. And we'll see what comes up this coming week in the area of current federal tax developments.